Welcome to ARC Next Sessions, episode 86. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we're joined by Blair Kamen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic of the Chicago Tribune. Blair, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Obviously, our audience is already well aware of your work and as your presence in Chicago, but I think that your audience has kind of expanded more recently in this last election cycle because this has been such an abnormal election. And normally, of course, the architecture critic for a major publication would chime in about what's happening um, in the election cycle or how the candidates might have different policies around architecture or urban design or such. But this particular election cycle has been a little bit different, to say the least. And in one small part, due to your personal relationship and professional relationship with Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. So I was wondering if you could start out by giving our audience who might not already be familiar a little bit of an explanation about specifically your relationship with Donald Trump. Sure. It's a very uh, long and um, tempestuous relationship with many highs, lows, phones that were, uh, you know, hangups on the phone. Spawning letters, insults on uh, delivered on the Today Show, retractions uh, made on the Today Show, Twitter wars. <laughs> so there's a lot to it. Basically, the the reason that I got to know Donald Trump was because he built his tallest and really one of his best towers here in Chicago. It's the Trump International Hotel and Tower. It is a condo and hotel tower on along the Chicago River. It's uh, 98 stories. It's the tallest building uh, in the United States, or it was the tallest building in the United States since Willis uh, Sears Tower in the uh, in the 1970s. Of course, the uh, One World Trade Center uh, has exceeded it in height. So really, my uh, relationship with Trump began in 2001 when the tower was announced, and it extended, you know, into the present really with um, reviews of the tower, controversies over the a very large and hideous sign he put on the tower in 2014, and um, it's just been the strangest thing to watch someone I know and someone I've dealt with directly run for president, particularly this guy. Um, <laughs> It's really mind-boggling that he is where he is today. I mean, actually, I'm sitting right now in the editorial board room of the Chicago Tribune. It's a beautiful panel room, you know, dark wood. There's a um, octagonal table here uh, with beautiful coffers, uh, you know, ceiling decoration. And interestingly enough, when Donald Trump began his run for president, he walked into this room to meet the editorial board of the Chicago Tribune. And the first thing out of his mouth was, Where's Blair Kamen? Because he was really ticked off at me for the reviews of his sign that I had written a year or so earlier. And, you know, rather than talking about like world peace or the state of the economy, he wanted to, you know, he had a grudge match to settle. <laughs> so, you know, all my colleagues here at the newspaper were astonished that, you know, this guy would, would, would you know, walk into the newspaper and, you know, where the hell is the architecture critic? I want to uh, spit in his face. And so there's a classic example of what I call his prosciutto thin skin. <laughs> you know, he's so anyway, it's it's been wild to to watch. Do you have that kind of relationship with any other developers or or is this really an unprecedented roller coaster of relationship with a public figure? Completely unprecedented. <laughs> no developer in Chicago cultivated me, courted me, wanted my approval in the same way that Donald Trump did. He is a master media manipulator. In other words, he knew that at certain times he would be a great news source for me about his about his tower. And so, I mean, I, you know, I never got correspondence or calls from Chicago developers in the same way I did with him. So it was really, uh, and you could just call his office in New York, you know, this is the Trump organization. Can I speak to Mr. Trump? This is Blair Kamen. Sure, we'll put you through, you know, and not to a public relations person, but right to him. So, I mean, the fact that in the early, in the Republican primaries, you know, his media-driven campaign, where he got all this free publicity and all these free advertising dollars by, you know, being a great subject for the media, didn't surprise me at all. In other words, candidate Trump was very much like developer Trump. He was accessible. He was good copy. You know, he was fun to write about. I mean, I had, I had experienced all that myself when he, you know, he was doing the tower here. So, Blair, my first question for you was, why did you have to ruin prosciutto? <laughs> I read that. I'm like, can there isn't there something else thin skin like onion or it's something perfect, like that? Perfect, perfect. I, yeah. I know. <laughs> oh, sorry about that, but that's <laughs> the, the shoe fit, so he has to wear it. 
You know, I was uh, struck by some of the articles that I've been reading uh, in order to kind of prepare for today. And one of the things that I was struck by is something that you had written about him. And it made me wonder, he wrote you a letter when you were going in for um, some heart surgery. Heart procedure, not surgery. Heart, uh, heart procedure. That's right. Yes. But he... He was, it was, I thought even though it was brief, it was kind of touching. And I'm like, that's a guy I just don't recognize. Yes, absolutely. But as a character, for me, he's, he's, I've been telling people, I said, he has a connection to the WWE, to, to World Wrestling Federation. And I kept wondering, I'm like, is he playing the classic heel? And then somehow he's going to transition to what heels actually do in wrestling, which is they win over the audience through their brutality, but then they become this hero. And I've not seen that part of him. Him where he transitions to this hero. But then I read that note and I felt like a pang of like guilt that I really resent and loathe this man <laughs> so much. And I'm like, he wished you well and thought you were going to pull through. And, and I, I can't, rec how do you reconcile those two individuals? Well, I reconcile the Trump you loathe with the Trump that has a, a nice side this way. He wrote the letter during the what I would call the courtship phase. In other words, this was early on. His tower was still under design. I had already actually blasted an early version of it as a kind of bloated blob on the skyline, and he was in the middle of changing it. So at that point, it suited him to be nice to me because he, you know, Ultimately, the it was in his interest to cultivate me and to get me on his side. And in the and his he was playing a long game, which was he wanted a good review. At the same time, I mean, he's a complex human being, and I don't think that he is, you know, no one is one hundred percent evil. He can be charming, he can be self-deprecating, he can be kind. I mean, the first time I met him in Chicago was before The Apprentice. I went up to him and I said, oh, Mr. Trump, uh, my parents who live in New Jersey tell me that your sister is a federal judge in New Jersey. And he goes, oh yeah, my sister, she gets a lot more respect than I do. And it was a really, it really caught me off guard because it was this wonderful kind of self-deprecating remark. It was funny. It also revealed a certain amount of insecurity, I think. So, I mean, he has a side that is fun. And is kind. You know, he has the capacity to be kind. Even Hillary Clinton complimented him during the last debate for, you know, raising or having good children. I don't know if he raised them necessarily, but it, <laughs> I mean, it does look like uh, Ivanka, you know, tells stories, right, about sitting in dad's office while he, uh, you know, with building blocks and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, in retrospect, I, I, I don't discount his capacity for kindness, but you know, at the same time, there's a saying in Chicago journalism, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And I think that when a developer <laughs> who wants a good review from you, you know, tells you that he loves you or is concerned about you, you have to you have to check it out and keep in mind what the end game is for him. One of the things that stood out to me, Blair, when you were talking about how we really don't know how to reconcile these two different ideas or two different personalities of Trump. And that is kind of the whole shtick of this election, of this campaign that he's running, that he'll basically say anything, it seems, to get whatever attention or whatever exactly. point he, he wants. And in that case, though, there it has been some really interesting commentary happening on, on the, from the media side of things of how then do you cover and take seriously a candidate in a, for like the most serious position arguably in the world, who doesn't seem to be taking that position seriously himself, or at least campaigning for that position. And there was a fantastic interview that I heard with um, a New York Times political reporter, Robert Draper, who has met with Trump many different times around many different occasions around the campaign and has tried to figure out whether or not Trump actually cares about running for president in that when he's given consultation or given information, he doesn't necessarily always seem to actually try to take it seriously or learn it. Or if he asks a question of someone that might be seen as like, a, oh, I trust your authority. I want to hear what you have to say. It's never actually clear whether that's the case or whether he just wants to flatter the person or get some type of other point across or something. So there's this constant back and forth that really has put the media in this weird position where they seem to also have kind of agreed that we can cover Trump like we wouldn't otherwise cover a presidential candidate. And we can be a little bit more, <laughs> shall we say, like 
personally biting in a lot of situations. And for an architecture critic, I don't know what your kind of normal case would be in approaching this, these kinds of subjects for a presidential candidate, because of course you do have an, an obligation and a responsibility to report on how, especially as a developer candidate, how this might come to bear on architecture and the built environment in general. But how has that changed media environment around Trump kind of had uh, come to bear on your own reporting on it? I think that, you know, what you're discussing is is this really tends to do with this epigram that you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And my experience has been that Trump often lives in this fantasy world where he, because of his ego and his narcissism, he he deals in a world of his own facts. I mean, the, the classic example was when, you know, he was interviewed by Matt Lauer on the Today Show about the sign controversy in Chicago. And just for your listeners, I mean, the, this was a, the background is that five years after finishing the Trump Tower in Chicago. He uh, put a sign with his, you know, the five letters of his last name, 20 foot high letters. The sign is stainless steel and it is backlit at night. It glows. It's nearly as long as half a football field and it overlooks a great civic space around the Michigan Avenue Bridge uh, flanked by the Wrigley Building, the Tribune Tower, and two other great 1920 skyscrapers. It's a civic space above all uh, with civic character. And here was this blatant commercial incursion into it. So the story went viral after Rahm Emanuel criticized the mayor of Chicago. Rahm Emanuel criticized the sign saying it was tasteless and wondered aloud whether there was any way to remove it. So Matt Lauer was interviewing Trump and Trump said of me, well, I thought that guy was uh, away from his job for a while. He's really a third-rate architecture critic, and I thought he got fired. <laughs> it was like, what? Which he's repeated not only in tweet, but also in daily talk show conversations. Like he's he's more or less said that exact phrase multiple times. Right. And so his thinking is that if you repeat, if you repeat something enough times, mm-hmm it becomes fact, even if it isn't, yeah. you know, I mean, I was aghast. I mean, I wasn't fired. I was on a, fel- you know, journalism fellowship at Harvard. And so I, you know, I called the Today Show and I asked them to run a correction and they did run a correction on the air. So the point is that Trump lapses into his own, you know, Trump world, reality world, and journalists have been forced as a result because of this unprecedented, you know, his unprecedented ability to lie, to misrepresent, to use innuendo, they've been forced to call out his lies and to just say, you know, he misrepresented this. He lied. He was wrong. Rather than just doing a typical he said, she said, where, you know, Trump said this, Hillary said that. And I've been really heartened by the very aggressive coverage of the New York Times and the Washington Post in particular in calling Trump to account in exposing his falsehoods and his background, whether it has to do with his development practices, his hypocrisy, you know, or his dealings with women. Newsweek's Kurt Eigenwald has also done a very good job. I mean, Trump has, you know, been talking about China, China this, China that. Well, I mean, you know, the tower here, uh, as Eichenwald revealed in Newsweek, uses uh, aluminum from China for its curtain wall. So, you know, I mean, there's just ample, ample. Trump is a great target. I mean, he's a great source and he's a great target. And the media, I think, really has had a field day in unearthing his past and what it says about his character, his temperament, and his ability to govern. So I think that's been great to see the media really rise to the occasion, as, you know, the Times and the Post have done. So going to a, the, a broader audience then, or a broader topic than just Trump, you were talking about Trump living in sort of Trump world. And I think one of the things that that I noted from the last sort of town hall debate was that an African-American man stood up and asked a question and Trump's response immediately went to talking about the inner cities. And as soon as that happened, my whole social media lit up with people going, oh, yeah, that's not, you know, that's like a knee jerk reaction that, oh, black guy, he must live in the ghetto. But do you think that that really is a failure of Trump to understand what's going on in the world right now? Or is that more broad, broad, widespread? Are there more people just in general that are, you know, I don't know, wealthy, white, Republican, whatever, that think that the the inner cities are just, you know, a, a, a hellscape at this point. And is that something that the media is maybe not telling enough of a story to spread the news that, yeah, cities, as every architect knows right now, downtowns are great and in great shape. 
Right. I actually um, enjoyed reading the other day a piece in the New York Times by um, Emily Badger, who had been at the Washington mm, Post long yeah, blog and yeah. apparently just joined the New York Times. So Emily wrote a, wrote exactly the piece uh, that should have been written that you that you wanted to see, which was that you know inner cities. First of all, what is I mean, inner city is just a cliche. It's jargon. Right. It applies <laughs> to it's an understanding of American cities that might have been or that probably was accurate about 40 years ago when you know. Center cities were often surrounded by um, poor black areas uh, and public housing projects like, you know, the infamous Cabrini Green project that was close to downtown Chicago. But obviously, uh, Trump's own tower here is uh, an exemplar of how downtown areas are actually reviving. And they're not inhabited by the poor. They're inhabited by, you know, millennials who are paying like ridiculously <laughs> high rents to live in luxury condo, luxury apartment buildings. So it's an unbelievably unnuanced, unsophisticated understanding of both the dynamics of cities and of African-Americans. So I was thrilled to see Emily's piece, you know, challenging that version of reality. It's a completely false narrative. It's not, a, I mean, it's a completely false narrative. If you're black and you are middle class and you live in the suburbs, you're saying, who the hell is this guy? He doesn't know to talk <laughs> about, you know, about how, who we are and how we live. I believe Emily Badger in that piece also makes the very keen point that as a developer and as someone who does work all over the U.S., Trump should know exactly the state of America's so-called inner cities. Exactly. Should know exactly what's actually like this economic realities and the demographic realities there that would be to his not only obvious purpose as a developer to know about, but also to his advantage as a candidate to know about. Absolutely. I mean, he is a very smart, very shrewd guy. He also has a, an awful capacity to demagogue. And I would I would uh, explain those inner city comments as demagoguery, you know, as a way to really appeal not to African-American voters, but to, you know, here he is trying to, you know, court suburban white women by, you know, supposedly showing that, you know, he cares about, about black people. You know, that, I mean, everyone saw through that when he started, you know, giving speeches to white suburban audiences about how much he cares about the black inner city. You know, ha ha, right? <laughs> a complete fake, you know, kind of appeal that was, you know, a kind of Machiavellian devious uh, appeal. So, I mean, look, Trump is, I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, like someone called me this week and they were working on a story about 2005 and their, their idea was that you know, in 2005, when the under, uh, what was it, the Access Hollywood incident occurred, that, you know, he was at the top of his game, that he was, uh, you know, The Apprentice was becoming a hit, he was becoming a celebrity, and it was a, a time for him to slide or be, be guilty of hubris, that, uh, you know, he was really hitting it big. And I actually said to this journalist that he really needed a, what we call a to-be-sure graph, paragraph. In other words, my dealings with Trump in that year were this. He had a chance to extend the spire of his tower in Chicago and make that tower the tallest building in the United States. He didn't do it. And you would say, why not? Because he's a megalomaniac, right? He always wants to be the biggest, the tallest, whatever superlative you know you can go for. What happened was he pulled his condo buyers and he found out that 30% of them, I believe, were reluctant to live in the tallest tower in the United States because they thought it would be a terrorist target. So he was very shrewdly doing a kind of market research and he put the bottom line before his ego as a developer because what really the, his bottom line is the bottom line and so you know when he says things like well we need to get the nato countries to pay more you know for their defense or all like you know or in other words he he sees everything through or he sees many things i should say through the prism of being developer of cutting deals of throwing out early positions of bargaining and so you know you can't necessarily take anything he says at face value because he's he's a wheeler, he's a dealer, he's you know he's he's not like a straight he's not a straightforward guy. But he's also again, I mean, in the, in the same way that he has the capacity to be nice, he has the capacity to be a very effective developer. I mean, he built his tower here, Santiago College, Travis, Chicago Spire was never built, even though it started construction. And Trump specifically said that tower is never going to fly. And you know what? He was right. And his tower here is. It's not a great building. It's a good building. But it's, you know, for Donald Trump, it's a pretty good piece of architecture. He certainly worked with Skid Morrings and Merrill to, uh, you know, go above his normal glitz package, <laughs> you know, that he's famous for. So, in other words, I mean, he's a complex, multifaceted figure. And, I mean, he isn't this cartoon that of evil or buffoonery that 
you know, he's often portrayed as. I mean, I, I think he's he's complex. And I mean, that's, you know, he he isn't all bad. And I mean, I, I say that as someone who's been, you know, publicly ripped by him, <laughs> you know, in front of millions of people. But I mean, as a critic, you know, my job is to kind of weigh and to judge. And I mean, you know, I don't put all my sort of in the Trump evaluation, not all the marbles are bad, as it were. There are some marbles that are, as it were, that are good, you know, on the scales of uh, that a critic uh, might use to weigh one's character. You know, Blair, being from the East Coast and, and knowing um, a lot about his past and knowing about the ad he took out in the New York Times about the Central Park jogger, about those five black... He, he has, has had a past of demagoguing and outright racism from dating back from his uh, his his homes, his apartments in, was it Brooklyn, I think? Queens? Yeah, the ones that his, da- the ones that his dad built, right? That the right. New York Times reported on, right? So it seems as though as he's gotten older, he's becoming more, if there's anything you could say about him, he's becoming more self-aware about how to manipulate the media and how to manipulate his image in a way. Like he's almost, you can almost say that this campaign was never really about being president, that what's been coming out recently is his son-in-law, Kushner, has been talking about a network. So it's like he's almost doing the one thing he could never do, which is architect his own, you know, television network. And that seems to be the play now. And he's got this captive audience. And it certainly seems like he's going head to head with Rupert Murdoch. But at the same time, do you think he's he understands how he's destroying one particular political party and the brand that they represent. I mean, he, if that's the goal is to funnel viewers and to create his own network, he's destroying a brand that has existed for, you know, for nearly 160, 170 years. It's hard for me to know what he understands and what he doesn't, but there is a, clearly a pattern, as we've seen in the failure of his Atlantic City casinos, where, you know, he gets off scot-free and other people's lives are destroyed in the process, you know, whether it's contractors or people who worked in those casinos or whatever. So it's hard for me to say, you know, whether he understands what he's doing. But my interactions with him, you know, have suggested consistently that his what he cares about is him. In other words, there was a great, there was a really funny bit on, you know, John Stewart of The Daily Show did a piece about uh, the the sign controversy called um, Sign Feud, uh, playing on Seinfeld. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, I was quoted in the piece, like I was, they took a clip from an interview where I said, you know, I wasn't fired. I'm not a third grade critic. You know, I, I was on a journalism fellowship at Harvard. I won a Pulitzer. And then they stopped it and John Stewart goes, Come on, Harvard, Pulitzer, <laughs> the only names that mean anything to Donald Trump are Donald Trump. <laughs> and that's so true because, in other words, it's always all about him. There's there's no nuance. There's, you know, that's where he is like a cartoonish figure, where his assessments of people like Paul Ryan are, are exactly the same as I've experienced. You know, one day Paul Ryan was a respectable guy. And then when Paul Ryan said he, you know, refused to campaign for him or refused to endorse him, you know, then he was like a loser. And, uh, you know, Trump was going to teach him how to win. You know, I, I like, hey, I've been there. I, I, I went through that exactly. I mean, millions, you know, scores of people have. So what really is, you know, terrifying to me as an American citizen is just the damage he's wrought on our civic discourse and the fa- the way he's ripped apart the fabric of our civic life by the way that he's, you know, spewed hatred, misogyny, racism, all these things. And it, and it seemingly has made it acceptable for other people to talk about them. That's what I find utterly despicable. And what disturbs me so much about his campaign is the legacy of hatred that and the that it's left. In other words, you know, he has spoken with great crassness uh, and crudeness and, and has spewed, you know, into the, the national dialogue, racism, misogyny, all these things, disrespect for dis- the disabled and for women. And these things are going to, you know, no matter what the outcome, even if Hillary Clinton wins, these things are going to take uh, years, if not decades, to uh, to heal. I mean, obviously, you know, there have been bitter battles before uh, for the presidency, but nonetheless, I mean, it's just enormously disappointing to witness the lack of decorum, the lack of respect for others, you know, that he's displayed. And again, you know, I need it all firsthand. I mean, when I talked to Trump right before my review of his tower here ran, you know, he asked me what my assessment was. I said, 
I think it's a good building. And I explained why, you know, I thought the curtain wall was beautiful, uh, it fit well with its environs, but that, you know, various factors like the spire and other things, you know, kept it from being uh, a great building. And there was this long pause and, you know, he, he goes, he says, good. You mean I sucked up to you for, you know, all these years and all I get is good. (laughs) <laughs> and that was sort of this kind of, you know, it was like this gross. And that's why, like, that's why when I think back to the letter he wrote that was the nice Trump, he was simply <laughs> sucking up to me. He Was he really being nice or was he sucking up? So, I mean, you know, all this kind of niceness was really ca- mere calculation in playing a long game. Yeah, it's hard not to then see that as a, a really terrifying, pretentious comment for that that might come in to say like bartering in a nuclear deal or like having this other scenario where if he were to actually become president, that kind of behavior is just unimaginable. It's just astounding. But exactly, and I, and I mean, if I could just mention one other thing, I mean, you know, there is this pattern that's terrifying. I mean, like you know, the the three a.m. tweet storm, you know, the middle of the night tweet storm against uh, Miss Universe, you know, who we thought was overweight. I mean, uh, again, he had done a comparable thing two years earlier with Paul Goldberger and me. This was, again, during the sign controversy. Trump uh, put out a tweet at 3.12 a.m. on June 22nd, 2014. I love the day Paul Goldberger got fired or left the New York, as New York Times architecture critic and has since faded into irrelevance. Came in next. I mean, you know, like Goldberger wasn't fired. He he left for the New Yorker and then he went to Vanity Fair. He hasn't faded into irrelevance. That's complete garbage. So, you know, but again, I mean, here's a guy who, you know, as Hillary Clinton, I mean, I don't think it's outlandish to say that, you know, Hillary Clinton can say, do you want a guy who's can be provoked by a tweet, you know, to have his, you know, have the nuclear codes? I mean, like John Stewart, you know, in the Daily Show said, you know, what the bleep is wrong with you? You know, do you have to? answer everybody you know she said remove the google alert from your name (laughs) (laughs) you know you should call up the uh the Seinfeld episode it's so funny and actually i mean just parenthetically what's really funny about that episode is that you know the tower here was designed by adrian smith of you know skid morongs in maryland by the way adrian sent me an email after the sign was put up and he you know unsolicited and he goes i had nothing to do with that sign <laughs> so so john stewart shows the sign and he goes um he goes you know this sign was probably the smaller version of the real sign that they really wanted and so what he did was he actually took the Jin Mao building, which is Adrian Smith's tower in Beijing, or pardon me, in Shanghai, 88 stories. And the letters T-R-U-M-P were covered the entire, one entire facade of the tower. So, you know, like instead of being 20 feet high, like each letter was approximately like what's well, eight into 88 or five into 88, you know, like 19, like each letter was like uh, 17 stories high. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absurd. So, I mean, it was, so John Stewart really hit it. I mean, he, although I, I must say that like he said, well, what do you expect, you know, Donald Trump to do? Of course, he's going to put a sign in his building. And I mean, trust me, I knew that. I had asked Trump about it. And, you know, he had cut this deal secretly with the city. And so, you know, that was kind of baked into the uh, his agreement with the city. So that's why he was able to spring this, spring this uh, terrible surprise on us. It seems like Trump's business is targeted to a completely demographic than his political campaign is targeted. Do you think this is going to have a big impact on his business as a developer, assuming that he doesn't win the election? I think that's a really good question. The New York Times had a story yesterday about how the campaign uh, has hurt his brand, where people are, you know, protesting by cutting up their, you know, by slicing up their Trump ties with a knife or, you know, throwing out their Trump wine or not staying in one of his <laughs> hotels. And in fact, you know, Adrian Gonzalez, right, of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who uh, the Cubs are playing right now in the NLCS, you know, said he refused to stay in, a, in Trump's hotel here when the Dodgers played uh, the Cubs. I do think it's going to hurt his brand. And I would think that his children, particularly Ivanka, would have told their father that, uh, you know, he was hurting his own legacy and the legacy he passed on to them. As the question of whether he is appealing in his campaign to different people than he sells to, it's hard for me to say. I mean, Paul Goldberger put on Twitter the other day that Trump's idea of luxury is actually a poor man's idea of what luxury is, you know, so all sort of glitz and glitter and 
I don't know if I entirely agree with that, but I think there's always been this kind of P.T. Barnum showman-like quality to him that, you know, you saw in his his casinos and in The Apprentice. And so it would be really interesting to to cross-reference a demograph the demographics of his his buyers, you know, the people who buy his products and the people who are voting for him and to see whether they were the same. Maybe like the Harvard Graduate School of Design can do a mapping study about uh, you know where where Trump's buyers are, where his support his supporters <laughs> are. That would be a really interesting exercise. Well, assuming it does affect his business and and uh, and he does lose the election and needs to look for a new uh, line of business, do you think that he will appoint an architect? critic to the to Breitbart News? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm waiting for a phone call or a tweet. <laughs> you know, I'm either going to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the new administration, or I'm going to be the Breitbart News architecture critic. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm counting on that. That's my, you know, plan B in case anything goes wrong here in Chicago. <laughs> you know, it's funny. One of the things that has come up on Facebook within the past couple of weeks and I had not heard of this movie before but it's a, a face in the crowd and it's a 1950s or 19 I think 1950s movie uh, starring Andy Griffith and he plays a character called Larry Lonesome Rhodes and he's like running for office and he's caught on an off mic moment or what he thinks is off but he's he's on mic but he thinks he's off and he says what he really thinks about the people that he's actually courting is a constituency. And he says what he really thinks. And I think that the 2005 tape is proving to be Donald Trump's lonesome, lonesome roads moment. It's it's pretty striking when you hear the language. It's very, very striking. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And what's interesting is that the irony here is that that off mic moment, which was unfiltered and not analyzed by journalists, was a kind of record, a kind of part of the record that has undermined him. In other words, this is a guy who lived and lived by the sword of reality TV, right, and publicity. And he's also dying or has been perhaps mortally wounded by that very same sword. Do you see what I mean? In other words, that you know, that record of of reality, of just unfiltered video is what's kind of come back to haunt him. And I mean, you know, it, again, that's sort of deja vu for me because I had, you know, kept his letters and, you know, with the gold raised, you know, <laughs> the letters, you know, saying Trump and what is seven, whatever it is, Fifth Avenue. And I mean, again, in the same way, you know, like if you have a record of what he did and what he said many years ago, then you can contrast it with his own actions or his own words, it's his undoing. So, I mean, you know, for me, there have been, again, this was, I mean, there have been all these kind of deja vu moments, you know, through the campaign that I simply experienced in my own little architect, you know, and urbanism world. And, you know, now these same character traits are being played out on this vast, you know, high stakes stage where, you know, the future of the country and the world are at stake. And it's, it's terrifying because, you know, I know this guy and I mean, I know that like keeping things in proper proportion matters in architecture and it really matters in governance. And I mean, you know, obviously as a, my editors, you know, don't want me saying who I'm going to vote for, but you know, I mean, based on my experiences, you know, the prospect of, you know, of this character, I know, you know, holding, you know, the highest office in the land and being the most powerful person on the face of the earth is um, is a disquieting proposition, without a doubt. So to have perhaps a glint of, of positive tangent to this, I wanted to know if you think that just by the nature of Trump, the hottest brand being <laughs> this Republican, being our Republican national candidate, and the fact that he is a developer, do you think that just by the nature of him being a developer and running for this position brings much needed attention to issues of urban development in the U.S. in a way that we haven't yet been able to kind of talk about on a national scale? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Glad I asked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a, and I, and I don't mean to be, you know, cut you off or to be blunt or rude, but 
I mean, all these important issues uh, have been ignored. You know, Hillary Clinton's campaign is less about her positive vision for the country than, you know, her success in the polls right now is largely due to his, you know, his woes. So, in other words, the two candidates both agree that infrastructure is important. And, you know, he, in part because he's a builder and she because she's smart and realizes that, you know, bridges, roads and other things are falling apart. There's little tension on that issue. And it's kind of a wonky issue, you know, and the word, the very word infrastructure starts making people fall asleep. (laughs) And so unfortunately, I think that issue has not really risen to any, you know, gotten much attention uh, during the campaign. However, it's a crucial issue. And whoever is the next president is going to have to face it because, you know, the the just if you've been to China um, and you've seen what they've done with high-speed rail or with their airports, I mean, there is some truth in what Trump says about the condition of our infrastructure. He isn't just, you know, people say like, you know, our airports are like third-world countries. I've, I've heard O'Hare described that way. I've certainly been through LaGuardia and I know that <laughs> That, you know, that is like a third world country. It's, it's, it's like, I mean, it, even even New Yorkers, I think, would acknowledge oh, that. Yeah. So, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, we have a candidate who is a developer and who knows about building, but really it's been this cartoonish discussion about a wall. I mean, come on, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a joke, mm-hmm. not the real discussion we need about infrastructure and what it means to, you know, productivity and connectivity and all these really important themes. So unfortunately, no, I don't think that his, you know, when you think of him, what do you think about? You think about immigration, you think about jobs, you mm-hmm. think about make America great again, you don't think about infrastructure. So no, unfortunately, I don't think that his, you know, his... I mean, the only thing that he's used his experience as a developer for is to say, I'll build the wall and I'm a business success. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both of those propositions, I think, are, you know, people have said building a wall is ridiculous. And also his success as a businessman is, has been called into question, you know, by virtue of his, of the enormous, you know, tax loss he took, you know, write down he took on his taxes. But again, I mean, you know, again, he has done successful things. There's no doubt about it. You know, the tower here, I think, has made money. Uh, you know, it's it's a you know it's by and large a success. The only part of it, ironically, that hasn't is there's a series of retail. It's a it's a three tiered tower along the base of the Chicago River. The idea was that Michigan Avenue, the great retail street, was going to be turned. There was going to be like a perpendicular extension of it, and those retail spaces, seven years now after the tower opened, are empty. There is not a single tenant in them. And so, you know, the joke is that if he wins, we won't need to build a presidential library because he can just put the presidential library right in the bottom of the tower. (laughs) You know, Blair, I just want to say one last thing before I get to my last question. But I think what you've just said has pointed out to the very, the simple fact of going back to what I said before. No one saw and least of all him, which is stunning, that he had everyone he needed to win. And all he had to do is make that transition to the hero. And the hero being talking about the the things that were broken in America, talking about the things he knew he could fix because he was a developer and a builder. He knows things. But so he had already the audience he needed to win. He just needed to convince the people in the middle that he was he was he was coherent and and able to build. And he never transitioned from the heel to the hero. And for the life of me, I can never figure out why nobody ever put that together, that that's what he was supposed to be doing. I think that's exactly right. I, I really do. I think that's a very good point. And it's interesting that you talk about heel to the hero, because the phrase that went into my mind just now was Achilles heel. His Achilles <laughs> heel is his narcissism is his ego and perhaps, you know, based on what we've seen, his unmitigated lust and lack of self-control. These are, you know, I mean, I didn't see all of that. I mean, I never, you know, I I had no idea about any of the, you know, the womanizing or anything like that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. In other words, if he had altered his course and his appeal slightly and been and appeared, you know, somewhat more rational and not this kind of bloviating, you know, boob, (laughs) this cartoon figure, then I think he might well have convinced enough people in the middle that, you know, he was going to, uh, you know, be a real change agent. And clearly he's convinced, you know, like 40% of the electorate. Yeah, every other wrestler has figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So no, I mean, I mean, from what I understand, the Trump organization is a very professional outfit. You know, 
Trump himself, I mean, not not so much in the sense that, you know, like architects I know who've been in his office said, you know, I felt like I needed to take a shower afterwards, that they were so sort of weirded out by him. But the organization itself, I mean, they know how to build buildings. They know how to make money. I mean, they they know how to do a project. I guess what it boils down to is that as complex as building a, a super tall urban skyscraper is, it's child's play, perhaps, in comparison to the nuance and the gravitas that are required to be president of the United States. I mean, it's like building blocks, you know, children's building blocks. And I, and I don't say that to disparage architects or developers, because clearly they work at, you know, it's at serious levels of complexity. But I mean, but being president is, you know, it's like a not a three-dimensional chessboard, but a four or five or six-dimensional chessboard. So, I mean, this is where I think he has fallen short in making that transition from heel to hero because he 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 just doesn't seem to have that capacity. It's not in him to kind of be, you know, noble and sophisticated and nuanced. He all, he has these just, you know, registers that are like, I hate you or I love you. And there's like little gray in between. And perhaps that's a reaction to Obama, you know, who dealt so often in gray rather than, you know, black or white as George W. Bush did. But it's a gray world, you know? I mean, it isn't (laughs) black and white is dangerous, as we saw from the Iraq Mm -hmm. war. And uh, I think that, you know, that's where his developer experience is at once a strength and a weakness and 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 that is and his particular way of being a developer is you know this kind of pt barnum get all the immediate attention say outlandish things has ultimately circled back and worked against him and that's been his undoing i wouldn't exactly call it a greek tragedy you know <laughs> there will be plays written about this for oh sure. yeah absolutely yeah wow it's a great well yeah just what it's been great material will for Ferrell saturday and- saturday yeah for saturday night live if nothing mm-hmm. else so blair i guess we've come to the final question <laughs> the final question the final question what are you reading and uh, what are you listening to these days well I have a sophomore in high school, and so what I've been reading... The Crucible. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've just read two books that I love, because he's reading them, and my wife and I love to... My wife is also a a writer and uh, used to work here at the Tribune. Her name is Barbara Mahaney, and um, our son, Teddy, a sophomore in high school, uh, has just been reading two wonderful books, The Catcher in the Rye and uh, When the Emperor Was Divine. And I hadn't read The Catcher in the Rye for so long. And I mean, you know, it's funny to talk about that because obviously Donald Trump went to a, a what, a military school. And, yes. and uh, I mean, he's about as different as you could get from Holden Caulfield. But I so admire J.D. Salinger and his ability to write, you know, inside a teenager's head and yet be so compelling and paint these incredible, incredibly vivid pictures of New York, you know, in the in the 40s and 50s and all of the, you know, the crazy, you know, the, the experiences in New York of, of going to theater or of going, you know, being in like in this weird hotel where like you could look across the, the light court and see, you know, very strange things happening in the rooms <laughs> across the way. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's what I've been reading. And uh, I mean, you know, every once in a while I'll uh, I've been when I have a chance, you know. I, I mean, I, I just read a wonderful essay not too long ago by um, John Morris Dixon, the former editor of uh, Progressive Architecture, who, interestingly enough, grew up in the same town in New Jersey that I'm from, a town called Fairhaven. <laughs> but there is kind of interesting thing about architecture critics, like you know, Virginia is the mother of presidents, and New Jersey is the mother of architecture critics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not making that up. I mean. Paul Goldberger is from Nutley, New Jersey. Ben Forge, the Washington Post, former Washington Post architecture critic, is also from Nutley, New Jersey. John Dixon and I are from Fairhaven. I mean, Paul and I have talked about how being from New Jersey, New York always seemed like Oz, you know, at the other on the other side of the river in this kind of wonderful, magical place that you would were kind of scared of, but also were, <laughs> you know, wanted to go in and unlock the secrets of this magical place. And so I, I think there's, <laughs> there, that that's part of the reason why. But anyway, what was I, where, how did I get off on that tangent? Um, what was it that... Um, Listening to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, so John Dixon wrote this wonderful essay about, um, that I had read recently about Ezra Stoller's photography and how, 
you know, Stoller was so careful and so deliberate in the way he would shoot buildings. In other words, he would, you know, study them, study the architect's intent. Often, you know, he would put pictures, uh, people in his pictures, you know, like those famous pictures of uh, TWA, uh, a good airport in New York, you know, where, uh, you know, you see people illustrating the, you know, Sarnan's idea of, you know, motion through this very dynamic modern space. And so, I mean, honestly, that his, that, that um, worldview is something that I think is ideal for architecture critics. You know, you see it in the writings of, you know, Ada Louise or Paul or Alan Temko, Bob Campbell. It's all about the human experience. It is never simply and a kind of arid art historical exercise. It's full of flesh and, you know, it's a, it's a drama that's played, you know, by larger-than-life characters, whether they're Trump or other developers, whether it's architects like, you know, Jeannie Gang or Saha Hadid or uh, Frank Geary, who, like Trump, has hung up on me, by the way. Um, <laughs> but in other words, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's I mean, people often talk about stolarization as though it were, a kind of uh, erasure of the rough spots in a building uh, and of you know glossing over the um, the faults but of course any architectural photographer is there to present the project in the best possible way and you know so you have to allow for that uh, no one's going to get paid if they don't you know produce images that flatter the building but the point is the the underlying humanism and you know that's what my work is really about. In other words, you know, building and architecture and urban design are ultimately about, you know, what they do for us and how they either ennoble us or or don't and whether they lift our, our spirits or crush them. And um, it isn't, I mean, it's funny, you know, like sometimes Frank Geary said, it's a little part of the world, you know, but it's an important part of the world. What we do, what we care about. And I think this political season has, you know, illustrated that in a way that, you know, I've dealt with sort of the, the little pre-presidential nominee, Donald Trump, in that, you know, I mean, he was a big star in this world, but it was a, a world that, you know, where the, the consequences and the stakes were limited. You know, a skyscraper matters, but it only so much you know? <laughs> anyway, so I mean, clearly, you know, the stakes, the consequences are so much higher in what we're facing now with the presidential campaign. But again, that, you know, to go back, I mean, it's all about whether it's the politics or whether it's about the architecture and the urban design. It's all about, you know, who we are, how we live, how it defines us. And that's that's why it's fascinating, you know, and, and, and can be, you know, an incredible kick when it's done right you know, and just utterly depressing when it isn't. <laughs> and um, I mean, I, I guess I've learned, you know, just over the years that, you know, like as a critic, I mean, you have the capacity to set an agenda, but you don't have the capacity to enact an agenda. You know, only developers and politicians have that capacity. And you do have the capacity ultimately too to act as a kind of Greek chorus. In other words, you're standing on the side, you know, you're observing the play carefully and it's ultimately up to you to utter the truth as best you know you can. And I think that's the measure of critics in the long run. You know, the extent to which they're able to discern, you know, the truth, the meaning. That's why you know we still read Ada Louise or um, and some of the other great critics. And um, it's a challenge, obviously, when you're writing on deadline, and particularly when you're writing in the world of Twitter and Facebook, where, you know, everything is supposed to be instant and uh, nothing, you know, there's very little time for reflection. But having, you know, I know from the emails I get from readers and how much people do appreciate having that voice in a daily newspaper or some, you know, a voice that helps them navigate the very complex and Byzantine and often shadowy world of developers. You know, the whole idea is to shine a light on it and on what's happening and with developers and architects and to, you know, cut through the archibabble and the theory, not to disparage theory, which is obviously important, but to put those things in terms that people can understand because it affects them. And why should they care? You know, why should I care? That's the story that, that's the question that every story has to, you know, to, to face. Why should the reader or the viewer care? And, you know, and so what I always try to do is, you know, make the readers care because 
here's what the building you know means to your urban environment, to your sense of Chicago, or to you know the United States, or whatever particular situation it is. And it's amazing how much people care and, and the connections that can be made. I mean, like I just wrote a piece comparing and contrasting Dodger Stadium and Wrigley Field. You know, one is the sort of archetypal cozy ballpark. The other is the archetypal colossal stadium, you know, built for the auto age, whereas Wrigley, you know, came into being shortly after the Model T was introduced. And I am getting emails from people in Los Angeles, you know, from Chicago. <laughs> Thank you so much, you know, because they have these really vivid memories of going to these ballparks and reading about them and understanding why Dodger Stadium is beautiful. And it isn't just a concrete donut and a multi, you know, yet another multi-purpose building is meaningful to people. I just know it, you know, from my experience every day. So, I mean, I, I do think that that telling, you know, trying to tell the truth like that Greek chorus, trying to establish connections with the built world, you know, so readers can understand what's happening around them. That's, that's what it's all about. We're already seeing so much of, uh, what you spoke about for the immediacy of the information that people expect and how that can be wielded for for good or for ill, um, especially now that we're on we're recording this episode, but right before the final presidential debate will take place tonight. And so when this episode airs, will be the same day where no doubt people are still talking about it and, and no doubt also fact checking the crap out of it uh, because <laughs> <laughs> because that is the follow up. And so and so in a way, the, the critic is in the role of that constant, not necessarily just Greek chorus, but the the interpreter and the fact checker to kind of bring everything back home to reality. So Blair, so great talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, talking about all these issues with us. It's definitely stuff that's been going through our brains before the election cycle, but definitely heightened in the last few months. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to all of you, Paul, Donna, Ken, and Amelia. It was really a a great opportunity just to reflect on this whole um, crazy relationship with Trump and, and hopefully <laughs> divine some larger meaning to it. So um, it was therapeutic. So thank you. Excellent. <laughs> and we hope we can have you back on soon to discuss, if not just Chicago in general, but the Todd Williams, Billy Chen, um, Obama Center as well, and whatever happens there. Thank you so much. And um, it, this was really a pleasure. And um, thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thanks, Blair. Well, that was a really wonderful conversation with Blair. I hope we're able to have him back on soon to talk about other non-Trump issues. For everybody out there listening, thank you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And please consider rating us on iTunes if you enjoy this podcast. And if you enjoy this podcast and you're in the Los Angeles area, we will be having a live podcasting event focused on the LA River, which will be taking place next Saturday, October 29th at the A&D Museum in downtown Los Angeles. Our lineup will include a number of prominent individuals in Los Angeles, including LA Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne, KCRW's Francis Anderton, and many others. For more information about that, just go to arconnect.com and you'll see a little banner at the top of the image grid that will link to uh, all the details. And you can also check out the event on Facebook. We posted a, an event on Facebook and you can indicate if you will be coming or if you're interested in coming and we would love to see you there. And if you can't make it, which many of our listeners can't because they're not in Los Angeles, we will be airing these conversations in the future right after the event. So you can, uh, you can get caught up then. Thanks again and talk to everybody next week.